0: Welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranki, and we are here today in the studio with staff writer Frank Walter Sands. The observant visitor to Iceland may be justified in raising their eyebrows at a particular street in Reykjavik, Barunstígur, a street named in honor of one Charles François Xavier de Coltrébaillo, an eccentric aristocrat who lived in Iceland around the turn of the century. His tragic story, in many ways, pretends the cosmopolitan explosion of Reykjavik and the role that foreigners have played in making it what it is.
1: To the Manor Born, the story of the Baron of A bright, mild, late summer Sunday greeted the festive locals in the Borgarfjörður region of western Iceland, who flocked from far and wide to take part in the dagur, National Heritage Day in early August 1898. The popular festival featured a variety of events, including traditional sporting competitions, poetry readings, speeches by noted Icelanders, and perhaps most remarkably, waltzes danced to mechanical music. To the loud, clanging, machine-driven tune of a curious large wind-up music box called a calliope, Couples, young and old, swayed and danced joyfully to Johann Strauss's Radetzky's March, a catchy waltz tune popular to this day. Other favorites included Hip Hip Hurrah March and Die Seussin Kleinen Magdalene." Before the global dominance of Edison's audio recordings that came to be known as records, this fascinating machine allowed popular music to be played to crowds in the same way we think of 19th-century street organ grinders. The mechanical wonder was generously loaned to the festival by a somewhat mysterious and clearly wealthy foreigner who had recently moved to Kvitarvetlir, a nearby farm located on the banks of the mighty Kvitao River, the Baron Charles François Xavier de Goldray Boileau. Iceland was a primitive, underdeveloped society at the turn of the 20th century. Although Iceland had been granted home rule in 1874, it was still very much under the control of the Danish crown, and full independence was decades away. Reykjavik was little more than a foul-smelling fishing village lacking public sanitation, a proper harbor, and paved roads. Fewer than 80,000 people lived in the entire country. Visterbandith, or bonded labor in the manner of serfdom, was not completely abolished in Iceland until as late as 1900. Due to this profoundly unfair tradition, landless farmhands were legally prevented from leaving the farms where they were employed without the permission of the owner, consigning some 25% of the population to abuse and drudgery and with little chance of a better life. As bad as conditions were for men, women typically earned one-third to one-half of their male counterparts' wages. Poor infrastructure and impoverished living conditions were grudgingly accepted as facts of life, but increasing awareness of the world beyond Iceland beckoned. Nearly a quarter of the beleaguered population had abandoned the meager farms and migrated to North America starting in the mid-nineteenth century, leaving much of the country depopulated. It is generally considered that the emigres' departure probably prevented mass starvation. A fresh new breeze. Kvítdávarvétlir was one of the finest and most productive Icelandic farms at the turn of the century. With many fertile acres of pasture land, dozens of dairy cows, hundreds of sheep, and access to the plentiful salmon in the Quito River. The estate was sold to the Baron for the modern equivalent of nearly one million US dollars, an unheard of price even for such a renowned estate. Apparently, he made no attempt to negotiate the price. At the Baron's behest, the farm immediately underwent extensive and costly modifications. In a matter of months, a new wooden building was constructed as living quarters for the farmhands, which was a huge improvement over the turf and stone huts in which most of them had grown up. Among the modifications the Baron introduced were a wide range of new machines that were imported and employed, including a mechanical mower, a hay baler, and an odd device that was meant to flatten the bumpy land by tearing up frost tussocks a familiar geographic feature of Icelandic pasture land. Farmhands' wages were paid in cash, which was a rarity in those days. The baron demanded to be acknowledged with proper respect at all times. In his presence, male farmhands were expected to doff their caps, while women were meant to curtsy. The baron insisted on personally approving every hire, because he believed he could determine the applicant's trustworthiness simply by looking deeply into their eyes. The locals were surprised and delighted when the esteemed Baron Bolo, as the locals dubbed him, showed up unannounced at the festival's reception tent, dressed in exquisite riding gear and casually smoking a Russian cigarette. He was accompanied by a good-looking young man in a suit and tie, who he introduced as his cousin, Richard Lechner, who the locals soon began referring to as the Count, for no other reason than he was associated with the Baron. The foreign pair spoke together in German, but made praiseworthy attempts to speak to the festival officials in Icelandic. The dashing foreigner with the lofty noble title asked if he might be permitted to partake in their festivities, which would be completely unprecedented and was immediately approved curiosity peaked as the Baron registered for the annual horse race. A noble visitor. Foreigners often wealthy Englishmen were not unknown in West Iceland at this time but were generally considered eccentric if not arrogant mostly keeping to themselves and ignoring the locals. That such a notable figure as a Baron would deign to join the Icelanders in their local gala and even compete in the horse race was welcomed with giddy anticipation. His background and reasons for moving to Iceland were largely unknown, but the charming baron who had become their neighbor just weeks before had already garnered a reputation for being a progressive and cultured man of vision and conviction. He expertly mounted his beautiful stallion and trotted in perfect tact to the starting line, deftly demonstrating his riding prowess. Hundreds of dismayed onlookers watched as the Baron was first across the finish line and became the horse race's undisputed winner. While most cheered the victorious foreigner, some chagrined locals were understandably humiliated, grumbling that the wealthy foreigner must have fed his horse some special foreign fodder to defeat them so handily. As Baron Galdre Boileau accepted his award for placing first in the horse race, speculation about just who this man was and where he came from was on everyone's lips. He was thought to be French, based on his name and general appearance, but he had come to Iceland from the Bavarian city of Munich and spoke flawless German with his so-called cousin, Richard. Letters addressed to him, however, came regularly from the United States, which led some to assume he must be American. According to the farmers who sold him Kretervetler Farm, he spoke English with a distinctive upper-class accent, sounding like the British lords who sometimes fished the Kritau River. It was rumored that one time, a young woman who had been working as a farmhand at Kviterwetler walked up to him and impudently asked, Who are you actually? And why did you come here? The Baron stared at her momentarily, then replied in clear and correct Icelandic, Don't you know it's rude to ask personal questions? Only a few months earlier, to wide acclaim, the Baron had made his first public appearance. It was a sunny evening in late May, 1898, and a concert was held to inaugurate Reykjavik's recently completed Iðnðrhus, or Craftsman's Hall, a relatively large wooden building that serves as a theater, meeting place, and concert hall. Idno, built on the banks of the city's lake, Chertnan, still stands to this day. The youthful Baron proved to be an exceptionally talented cellist. He was also a proficient pianist and an accomplished composer. After promising his local acquaintance, the writer Benedikt Grindahl to perform at the auspicious Reykjavik Music Association event to a packed audience of some 200 Icelanders, the baron had turned up with a 250-year-old kappa-di-salutsa cello, an instrument which was completely unfamiliar to the average Icelander at the time. His masterful playing of the knee fiddle or nj as it was reported in the following day's newspapers, reportedly left music-deprived Icelanders astounded, calling for encore after encore. To the delight of the audience, the Baron then improvised expertly with an a cappella singing group, which he clearly enjoyed. When asked by a fan whether he would be willing to perform regularly, he answered that he was actually giving up his music career, but he would be willing to play occasionally for charity. His new passion, he said with a grin, but without any touch of irony, was to become an Icelandic farmer. their strók í He's a flighty one. Just why the Baron chose to become a farmer in Iceland of all places was not clear to anyone. With all his impressive heritage and fine skills, he was used to a wealthy cosmopolitan lifestyle in America and Europe. Apart from studying music for years in Munich, the Baron had been cruising frequently to London or New York or spending time in places such as Algiers when not at his family homes in Paris or on the Italian Riviera. Already fluent in seven languages, the Baron managed to learn Icelandic with remarkable speed. He came from a privileged background. He was the son of a wealthy French diplomat and had been educated at expensive English boarding schools. His more practically minded brothers in America were as worried about him as they were mystified, writing, quote, He was flying high after arriving in Iceland, which made us happy, as we had been following him between hope and fear. On the other hand, we knew very well how quickly things could change for our brother. We knew of his plan to move to Iceland, But we didn't take it too seriously. We had hoped that our patience would be rewarded, and that Charles would realize what a pipe dream this was, but hoped that he would somehow find happiness and peace in this absurd place. Farming in Iceland was not an especially profitable endeavor, even at the best of times. It requires extensive knowledge and hard-won skills, as well as a certain disposition. It was not long before his farmhands and neighbors began to notice the baron's odd behavior, demonstrating inexplicable apathy and irrational carelessness on many occasions. When purchasing a horse, he would avoid wasting time with troublesome negotiating and simply ask the seller to name his price. In the middle of important farm projects, which would consume his attention for weeks on end, he would suddenly lose all interest, mount his horse, and ride away without a word of explanation. At other times the baron would capriciously summon his expensive imported private steamship, which was docked nearby, and order it to sail him to Reykjavik where he owned a comfortable home on Laugavegur. Local farmers commented that the baron was like an untamed horse that would bolt, running off at the slightest distraction, and that the baron, quote, was likely not wholly sane. When he decided it would be pleasant to stay in a luxurious tent with all the amenities on a nearby lake, the baron called together the various local Icelandic farmers who owned it and offered them triple the estimated value. After three days of hunkering in his tent while it rained continuously, he abruptly rode back to Kvítar abandoning his latest acquisition, never to return. In the summer months the baron would practice his marksmanship with a pistol by shooting at golden plovers. He insisted on eating grilled salmon and mashed potatoes nearly every day. When one of his servants was heavily pregnant, the baron was so repulsed that he fired her immediately. Whether out of shyness or arrogance, and despite his language abilities, when the baron was approached in public, he would invariably pretend not to understand and simply walk away. After a few months of drab living at Kvitar Farm through the autumn and winter of 1898, the Baron was bored. He saw business opportunities, however, everywhere, claiming Reykjavik could double or even triple in size with the right investment. It was then that he decided to take ever bigger risks with his remaining money, taking short-term high-interest loans when necessary. Looking to drive progress and change, He financed the construction of a hugely expensive modern concrete barn which was to house 50 milk cows and provide higher quality dairy products to the citizens of Reykjavik. The unfortunate project was destined for failure. Locals did not know what to make of the baron's bold innovation and balked at buying milk from what they considered a foreign company. The barn's construction alone cost three times its budget and the cows produced much less than anticipated. By the summer's end, the baron became depressed and fell seriously ill. Unable to even hold a pen, he was bedridden for months. Before the end of 1899, he was forced to sell the barn, his precious steamship, and various other properties at a tremendous loss in order to pay off his rising debts. Upon his recovery, He dismissed the bankruptcy of his dairy project as regrettable, but insignificant. There were far greater rewards to be had, which would dwarf the year's losses. The Baron's new plan was to create a huge fishing company with nearly a dozen ships and a modern harbour. The required financing would flow in, he was sure, because it was obvious that Iceland needed to compete with the European fleets that had been exploiting Icelandic fishing grounds, since the Middle Ages. All it would take was for the Icelandic Parliament to approve the new fishing company's charter nothing but a trifle, surely. Flush with fresh loans from local Icelanders, the optimistic Baron set off by ship to London to raise the rest of the capital. Interest in the innovative plan was high and the Baron saw no chance of failure. When the Parliament broached the issue in the summer of 1900, however, Opponents pointed out that the Baron was no Icelander. Discussion went on for months, but the Charter's approval never gained a parliamentary majority. The Baron's fishing company, like so many of his business ventures, was stillborn. A tragic end. It was a cold winter evening in 1901, between Christmas and New Year's, in London. On a regional passenger train from southeast London to Victoria Station, the normally uneventful journey was interrupted by the crack of a lone gunshot. The piercing report resonated in the confines of the narrow train carriage, and briefly a nervous silence ensued. The train's two conductors, who had been checking tickets, quickly made their way toward the apparent origin of the shooting the only first-class cabin with closed curtains. As the conductors cautiously opened the cabin door, their eyes were drawn to an irregular dark stain on the wall, just above an empty seat. Then they caught sight of a well-dressed young man sprawled unnaturally on the floor, a dark, sleek pool of blood surrounding his head. He wore a gentleman's high-collared white shirt with an ornate cravat and an elegant waistcoat. They stared wide-eyed at the gaping wound in the man's head and the blood soaking his wavy brown hair. An antique revolver lay on the floor next to his lifeless hand, the last traces of gun smoke still drifting lazily from the single barrel. Speculation among the train's passengers spread like leaves in a storm. Some suspected an armed robbery, perhaps gone terribly wrong while others considered the possibility of a deliberate murder. Rumors abounded. Was it a crime of passion? A jealous lover's revenge? Clad in tall, dark blue helmets and matching wool tunics adorned with brass buttons, a small contingent of London police arrived on the scene. Upon the detective's first examination, there was little doubt that the young man in the blood-sodden, bespoke suit had taken his life most likely in a moment of despair. A note of requests in the event of his death appeared to confirm that the fatal incident was no accident. The carte de visite, in his elegant but otherwise empty portemonnaie, identified him and his local address in Annerley, southeast London, as Baron Charles François Xavier de Goldray-Boileau. The coroner's brief forensic examination officially registered the death. Quote, killed himself whilst temporarily in stain, shock and hemorrhage due to inflicting bullet wound to head from a revolver." Due to the letter left in his coat, the police had no trouble in determining that the unfortunate man's next of kin was a younger brother who apparently resided in the American city of Baltimore. The following day, he was duly informed of his older brother's tragic death via transatlantic telegram. In the end, Baron Charles Goldrey Boileau died penniless on an English train by his own hand. His many business ventures were certainly progressive and innovative. Had he chosen to live in a more modern country, such as America or France, he might well have been much more successful. Icelanders were quite simply unreceptive to the forward-thinking ideas that the Baron was so eager to establish, in part due to the fact that he was assumed by some prejudiced Icelanders to be just another untrustworthy, money-grubbing foreigner. His stay in Iceland was brief, only a couple of years at the turn of the 20th century, but the concrete barn that he built still stands to this day, and today houses a convenience store. He left an indelible mark on the emerging city of Reykjavik, and in belated recognition of his achievements, charming Barnstigur Street in Reykjavik was named in his honour.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking today, Frank.
1: Thank you. This was a a real pleasure to share this story, which I find to be really fascinating and strange.
0: So something that a lot of people might know about the kind of maybe founding myth of Iceland is that um, Iceland was supposedly founded by settlers who were fleeing a tyrannical king Harold Finehair uh, of Norway. So there's this kind of funny way in which, um, you know, the kind of founding myth of Iceland has always been about resisting aristocracy. There's a very kind of um, egalitarian spirit, I think, in Icelandic history. Uh, of course, this isn't always the case. Um, I mean, certainly in the sagas, there are powerful chieftains and there are poor farmers uh, but, you know, in theory, uh, Iceland was an egalitarian country, at least, um, you know, these things weren't kind of formally codified into the law, like in the feudal system, like you had on continental Europe. So, you know, I think it's really interesting uh, to think of, you know, like like what is the place of an aristocrat uh, in Iceland around the turn of the century? Like, Like how would people kind of perceive that? Is it merely something kind of exotic, something that people don't kind of understand? Uh, Or, you know, maybe was there even like a slight resentment uh, of a figure like this?
1: I think those are all very interesting points, especially the idea that uh, he was just an oddity. So a person coming from abroad, clearly with a lot of money, clearly with a lot of other people respecting him, it's what I guess is the equivalent of um, a celebrity today, like a pop star or a mm. or a movie star or something like that. And we all know how people respond in those situations. They get they get to be um, you know their hearts flutter and they get excited and they don't really know what to say and so forth. And then there's other people who are always going to resent them for what they think is unjustifiably. Uh, too much power or influence or wealth and
0: so to kind of uh stay on the historical thread um is actually a kind of interesting site um, and i was reading a little bit about it um, in preparation for this and as you mentioned uh, uh was a very rich farmland actually um and Going back uh, to the sagas, there's actually some references of it um, as uh, some of the best fishing in Iceland. Uh, So this is like very kind of rich land actually. Um, And I thought it was kind of interesting that there are a couple mentions of Kvitarvetlir and, you know, I mean, not to be too superstitious, uh, but uh, a lot of bad things have actually happened on this farm. Uh, Kvitarvetlir is actually uh, the site um, so, uh, in Eil Saga, um, the hero, Eil Skatlikrimson, um, he goes to a ball game. Um, there's this kind of game that, uh, settlers and, uh, Vikings played with a ball, probably, uh, that archeologists aren't really sure exactly what it was, uh, but nevertheless, some sort of ball game, uh, and basically, uh, a disagreement at this ball game, uh, led to Eil's first killing. Uh, and that actually happened at Kvitarvetlir, uh this this ball game. Um, and similarly, uh, later in that saga, uh, this same location uh, Kvitarvetlir, um, is where Ail's uh, son drowns at sea, uh, and Ail actually kind of composes what is often called like the first lyric uh, in uh, Old Norse. Uh, he like 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 he writes this poem Sonatorek, uh, uh, which is like this very kind of like emotional poem about grieving his son, and so. I don't know. I mean, like, 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 not to kind of read too much into the coincidences there, but uh, there's certainly something about this farm in yeah. particular that seems to have attracted tragedy, superstition. Death. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a very interesting addendum there is that uh, in the 19th century there was rumors that were strongly believed of two ghosts that lived on or dwelled on the property. One of them was. Uh, evil ghost, and that one would make, for example, the hay moldy Mm. and would blow away the hay and uh, would cause uh, birth problems for the sheep and was generally just an evil spirit, something like what we might think of as a a demon or something. And the other uh, ghost was fighting against and was sometimes neutral, but very often would save things from going badly. So mm. the there was a superstition on the farm, among the farmhands, who often would be intergenerational. Uh, and they would say, oh, well, this must be this ghost working in our favor, or unfortunately that ghost must have took control at that time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... <sighs> This kind of story always reminds me of, you know, say, Heart of Darkness or something. Mm -hmm. And you have Mm -hmm. this kind of modern figure who kind of, you know, maybe it's definitely not a one-to-one correspondence because, you know, we can't quite say that he represents rationality as such. I mean, he's a very kind of flighty figure, but, you know, he's kind of bringing modernity. He's bringing industry. Uh, To Iceland, and yet there's something about his presence that seems to kind of run up against this wall of the land that's somehow resisting him. Like there's somehow, you know, it's it 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 somehow seems a little bit more than just a lack of the people wanting to adapt. It kind of seems like the land itself is somehow rejecting him in this almost kind of spooky way.
1: It, It is. It's a very interesting point, and it's something that I'd like to actually cover in a future article. Um, what we can see in Icelandic society, despite what we were talking about earlier with the egalitarianism, is that there was a very strong um, conservative movement among the country's elite, mm. all the way up to perhaps even present day, where the moneyed people, the landed people, obviously, mostly men, were uh, had a vested interest in keeping... Um, the other people relatively uneducated and and in the same place. they were very threatened, for example, when in the mid 19th century people began to emigrate to Canada and America because they were losing their form of cheap labor. They were also very much against the um, founding of any kind of city centers or or more active towns. They wanted to keep the people separated, they wanted to keep them, relatively uneducated, and they wanted to make them as compliant as possible. This was more out of tradition than, than formalized laws, but there was this law, as it states in the article, that was on the books until 1900, which stated that unless you had the explicit permission of uh, the owner of the farm, you would not leave it. You had to work there until you died, and you were not allowed to marry who you wanted. It was, uh, it was a very difficult time for poor people, and the poor people we're talking about comprised approximately 25% of the population.
0: Yeah, you know, this uh, myth of the kind of egalitarian age of Icelandic settlement, um, you know, that might have been true the first two or 300 years. You have a state of like relative equality. But, you know, I mean, certainly over time, things became more and more unequal. And it, a kind of interesting etymological note, just, I mean, the English word bondage comes from not Icelandic, but Old Norse. Uh, and the word for just being a farmer, bonti, is to be a bondsman, and you are bonded to the land. And this really does actually have to do with the surf relation where you are bonded to your land.
1: You're not allowed to leave. Uh, apropos is also the word husband in English. Yeah, yeah. You're bound to your house. Yeah. So it's a housebound man, which means he's probably got a family, I would suspect. And a mortgage, actually. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Really. really. It it really is just about being being mortgaged. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, funny but true.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, So in researching this piece, um, there's always things that inevitably don't make the cut. Uh, What were maybe some kind of little interesting facts that didn't quite make it in?
1: Um, The article makes mention of the fact that he uh, traveled extensively and cruised in between places like London and Paris and also Algiers. And Mm. the reason that Algiers is interesting in terms of um, uh, modern, let's say, understanding of of sexuality and gender identity is that Algiers was a place where um, men who were interested in romantic or sexual relationships with other men and boys could go and freely practice their, um, their hobby or their interests or their, their life's passion. Uh, it was a place where it was culturally accepted mm. at the time. And um, it was not unusual to find very aristocratic Europeans and Americans living there long-term including people like E.M. Forrester and Oscar Wilde. Um, and it was clear that the Baron also took part in that. And we have no evidence to, to point to the fact that, that um, he uh, was gay or, or identified in any way like that. But there seems to be a strong indication that he felt differently about relationships with women than a lot of his heterosexual counterparts.
0: Yeah, and there's also this somewhat mysterious figure of um, his supposed cousin, I believe. Uh, you know, his male partner that he seemed to have lived with for a long time that the locals kind of took for granted as his cousin.
1: Yeah, the one they called the Count Richard Letcher, and his uh, story is very interesting. He was uh, more or less given to the Baron by a mutual friend. Uh, the young man Richard was 18 at the time. Mm. And um, he was actually technically employed as his manservant or, or butler, but the Baron explicitly demanded that he um, keep this information hidden and that he identify himself only as a cousin. Mm. But what kind of relationship they had other than that is impossible to, to know for sure. Uh, we do know that, that um, later on in life, uh, Richard moved to the United States and became a ship captain on the west coast and fathered a daughter. So we don't know much more about him than that, but that is recent information that was discovered by the Icelandic writer and researcher Thorin Eldjart, who wrote the book upon which this article is largely based, known as, in Icelandic, The Baron.
0: Mm. So it's
1: maybe always a little bit
0: dangerous to kind of psychoanalyze uh, historical figures um but you know clearly um it, it seems that he saw iceland as you know somewhere on the periphery where he could kind of be left alone maybe you know i mean just like uh maybe his exploits in tangiers you you know as a european of the time you maybe want to leave the center of things and kind of go to places on the edge where you have the freedom to live how you want to live. Mm. Um, Of course, maybe in that regard, Iceland seems to have not been exactly, uh, maybe there are some ways in which uh, Iceland didn't really live up to what he thought it was going to be. Um, I guess maybe my question is, what do you think that he saw in Iceland? Was it merely a place to kind of try out some of his endeavors? You know, in which case, maybe the question is, why didn't he then go to the new world? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or was it, yeah, maybe an opportunity to be left alone, Mm -hmm. an opportunity to kind of live how he wanted?
1: I think that's a very, very interesting question. And it's uh, sort of often stated as um, people talk about liminal areas, places that are on the edge. And I, I agree with you. I think Iceland at that time, if not now, was very much um, on the edge of the civilized world. Uh, we know that the year previous to his arrival in in Iceland, he had made an attempt to start a business on an island in Scotland, hmm. which unfortunately went so badly because he fell into some kind of a depressive state similar to what happened to him when he um, went through his business failures in Iceland. Uh, that is partly why, One of his brothers in writing after his death said how worried he and uh, the rest of the family was about this um, venture to Iceland and that they feared that it would not go well. I think you're also correct in the assumption that this represented a place which was far enough away that he could leave his questionable reputation and debts that he had accumulated in other countries behind. So he was a bit beyond the law and the rule, and um, he hoped, according to his own notes, he saw it as a fresh start.
0: Uh, You also mentioned briefly his brothers, who are kind of inverse figures, uh, the more responsible sons of the family, perhaps. Um, Did you see anything about how they made their fortune or how they kind of made their way in the world?
1: Well, the, the family consisted of four children, Um, the sister we know the least about, but she's the only one who actually had living offspring. Mm. The um, older brother was the one in control of the finances and he lived a relatively long life, but without much uh, offspring or children or, or wife of any kind. His younger brother was very similar to him. He was the one, who was quoted in the article, and he had the closest relationship to Charles. And he lived in Baltimore for a long time and became a successful portrait artist. Um, Unfortunately, he died uh, at a very young age of, I believe, tuberculosis. Mm. Um, So the entire family's uh, legacy has only been preserved in historical texts, and there are no living descendants from the family.
0: You know, this kind of thing is just always really interesting to me because, you know, I mean, uh, this barn that he built, um, uh, for the dairy, uh, that's actually something that I walk by every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't really think about these things sometimes, but then, uh, just this little, you know, just these little stories always kind of show us how history is always around us. Um, and you know, every building really has a story and they're maybe not all quite uh, as tragic or interesting as this one, but you know, I mean, I just really think it says something about the kind of staying power of history and how these things are still all around us in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I, uh, as a young man coming to Iceland, uh, I lived right around the corner as well and would often later shop at that convenience store which used to be the barn and it's funny because it's it feels like it has some kind of a presence in a rather superstitious way um, it I mean feels like older. definitely
0: before I knew this story I always f- perceived in some sense that building stands out or it doesn't quite belong actually yeah. like, no. like it it, it doesn't quite fit into where it is for some reason. It's kind of built a little bit lower into the ground. Yeah. It's very just boxy. It's clearly not a residential building. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously I would have never guessed that this was the story, but there's definitely something about the presence of that building that kind of sticks out a bit.
1: Yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting because any similar building of such a size would have been with um, steel girders built into it, and this was built completely of concrete. That's one strange thing. The other thing is, if you look at the old layout of Iceland, it was right on the water, and it had a little dock that would go right up to it. Mm. And that was so they could bring hay from the west of Iceland with his private steamship and drop it off right there so that the cows would have fresh hay. Uh, It was a very efficient system at the time, but now it looks, because they've built uh, a, a lot of streets and so forth below it, it looks like it's quite far from the ocean, but it actually was a key building uh, with a with a port right there. Oh, wow. um, the other thing that's kind of fun to realize is that uh, the house that the baron maintained in Reykjavik was just around the corner on Lojgovegur. It's now been torn down, and there's a modern building in its place, but it would have been at number 92. And... Um, It apparently was, we don't have any pictures of it, but it was apparently a very comfortable, luxurious house, which he bought. And it was because he was always walking between that house on Leugevigur and down to Krevisgat, where the, um, Krevisgat is the name of the street on which uh, the Baron's um, uh, barn still survives. And that's why it's called Baron Stigur, because it was the climb that he had to take to get back and forth to his barn kind of a nice history.
0: Well, um, in closing, was there anything that really kind of stuck out to you? or?
1: Yes. Um, I was very struck by his behavior because it seemed like he was his worst enemy. Mm. Um, every time he started to go out, he seemed to go out uh, into a, a new venture with too much energy, with too much excitement, enthusiasm, and then when things started to turn badly or it went on too long he would simply walk away and then he would go into long bouts of depression that would actually affect his physical health and consulting with um a few learned people with experience with these symptoms it was suggested that this may be indications of a bipolar disorder and people with these traits often have uh, higher rates of suicide, and that would also be consistent with this story. So that might explain why his end was so tragic, and it might also explain where some of his genius came from as a musician and as an innovator.
0: Yeah. And even though he maybe never really integrated into Icelandic society, I mean... uh, Certainly, the most Icelandic thing about him, in my perspective, is uh, taking out high-interest, short-term loans. <laughs> Don't we all know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, taken down many a foreigner coming over here. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, thank you for talking today, Frank.
1: Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you, Eric.
0: <laughs> oh, and uh, one more thing. If you enjoyed listening today, uh, you can get 40% off an online annual subscription today at icelandreview.com with the coupon code ICELANDREVIEW23. So that works out to just be three euros a month for access to all of our online articles and all of our interviews and everything. Uh, and again, that Review ICELANDREVIEW23, all lowercase, ICELANDREVIEW23.